Welcome to Superheroes of Science. I'm Steven. And I'm Sarah. We co-host Science from the Experts. Our guests are professionals doing cutting-edge science right now. They are experts in their field discussing what they know best. So listen up and learn real science from real people. Subscribe now and stay informed of our latest episodes and show your support. Joining us today on Superheroes of Science, we are so excited to welcome Michael Kirk. Michael is a research scientist with the NASA Goddard Space Flight Center and is the PI of NASA HEAT. So what is NASA HEAT? Well, hello everyone. I'm really excited to be here first and foremost. Um, I am excited to talk to you today about heliophysics, about the sun, about the sun-earth connection. But to start off with, NASA HEAT is the Heliophysics Education Activation Team. What that means is that we're coming out to you in both formal and informal education settings and talking to you about the sun and about how the sun and earth work together. Uh, so, but what is heliophys heliophysics? Oh, yeah. oh, like oh okay. We're, we're gonna get into the meat of it right now, aren't we? Uh, <laughs> heliophysics, okay. So, so heliophysics is is uh, uh, it's two words, you know, and we we took them and we um, took two words and um, put them together. So helio means sun, and physics, of course, is the explaining of how things work and behave in our universe. So when you stick them together, you get the way the sun works and the the way the sun behaves in our universe. Um, and the idea of heliophysics is actually, it's a relatively new idea. Um, it didn't really exist that long ago. I mean, just 20 years ago, the, this word heliophysics didn't even exist. So this is a relatively new word. But what we're trying to do by using the word heliophysics is capture this idea that the sun isn't just something that rises in the morning and sets at night, but actually affects our lives every day and is also a fundamental laboratory for plasma physics. Um, so when you're studying how hot temperatures, hot gases um, under pressure with magnetic fields, how they behave, you can either go to some sophisticated laboratory here on earth that takes you know, millions of dollars to run and, and years and years to, uh, to build, or you can get a telescope and point it at the sun and see those same effects, high temperature, high pressure, plasma. And that is what heliophysics is. It's about the relationship between the earth and the sun and about the physics of how the sun actually works. Uh, you, you might be annoyed at me, or both of you might be, uh, when I start asking, uh, you said studying plasma. So is the sun yeah. a plasmic state? It is. So so I, I think there was a song by um, They Might Be Giants. I don't know if anybody's a fan of them. So they, they put out a sun. They, they made a song that says, like, the sun is a, a mass of incandescent gas. OK, so that is actually not technically true. And so they came out with another song years later called The Sun is a Miasma of Plasma. Super catchy. Go look it up. Um, a lot of fun. Uh, but so OK, so what, what is a plasma? Uh, a plasma is the fourth state of matter. Okay, so you have a solid, and then you start heating a solid up, and the solid melts. It doesn't matter if it's ice or if it's metal, the, the solid will melt and turn into a liquid. Okay, and you still keep on dumping heat into it, and the, and the liquid will eventually evaporate and turn into a gas. Okay, so that, that's a third state of matter. We have them a lot here on Earth. You're very used to it. Now, if you keep on heating the gas even hotter, then what ends up happening is those molecules that form the gas end up starting to break apart and you get ions. So you get, so let's say you have um, hydrogen 
the simplest atom there is, uh, one proton, one electron. When you start heating an, uh, um, hydrogen up even further, the electron and proton separate from each other. At that point, you don't really have hydrogen anymore. You just have a soup of charged particles. Mm -hmm. That is a plasma. Um, and so you can talk about different types of plasmas. You can talk about partially ionized plasmas where only some of the atoms have broken apart or fully ionized plasmas where actually you have a, just a complete soup of electrons and protons. But that is the matter, state of matter that we call a plasma and that our sun exists in. And you get that from extremely high temperatures or extremely high pressures. The sun has both. I think that's the best explanation of plasma as a state of matter that I've ever heard. And I really appreciate it. Like that made a lot of sense. Okay. Oh, I understood yeah. it. So it, must, yeah. it made sense to me. So yeah. it must've been a good explanation. <laughs> but so, but it, I don't know. I, know. I, I guess I didn't, I didn't realize it was a, a big ball of plasma. Yeah. And so that uh, threw me off just a little bit there. Mm -hmm. huh. it, it emits a lot of energy, right? Oh yeah, yeah. So, so the sun is the source of all, almost all of our energy on Earth and in our solar system. And I say almost because if you're going to technically count up all the energy, there is some energy left over from the formation of the Earth that is, uh, you know, built into uranium or um, and, and nuclear power. Uh, some that's built into the magnetic fields of the Earth. So there, there is certainly some there. But on the surface of the Earth, most or almost all of our energy comes from the sun. And and this is this is all of our energy. This is not just you know the sunlight that hits you in the face when you walk outside, or the solar panels that are going to charge your car or your house. But also, if you're talking about fossil fuels too, all of those come from plants and and some animals, but mostly plants that have sat underground under heat and pressure for years, and and turned into oil, crude oil, and then we take it and refine it and make different products out of it. But all of those plants got their energy from the sun. So it really, almost everything that we do here on Earth is somehow connected back to the sun and all of our energy that we use on a daily basis is solar power in one way or another. And, and this, is, this is a good thing. And we happen to live in a place um, where the Earth is just the right distance away from the sun to, to make us warm, but not hot, not too cold, but not too hot. Just it's, it's called the, the habitable zone. When you're looking at extra solar planets, planets outside of the solar system, that's what they're looking for if you're going to find life. Because it is the, the universe is a very cold place most of the time, or you're close to the sun, it's way too hot. So the fact that we live right here, we just get the right amount of energy coming from the sun, and the sun is fairly constant with that. It, year in, year out, millennia in, millennia out, we get a very consistent amount of energy coming from the sun, which makes it habitable. It makes us so that we and the rest of life can exist here on Earth. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. Other than uh, helping plants grow and everything on Earth live, um what does it do what does it i mean there's things it does to our atmosphere and stuff then with all that energy being bombarded on us yeah what kinds of things yeah is it doing to the our planet that's that's a fantastic question because you're you're you actually uh so i i was a little careful with the words i chose um because um the sun is mostly constant but it not completely stable. Uh, 
So every once in a while, the sun will go through a, an active cycle and then a quiet cycle. And what that means is when the sun is active, it means there's lots of explosions and eruptions on the sun. We call these solar flares or coronal mass ejections, where the solar flare releases a bunch of energy into the atmosphere or into the universe. And then uh, the, the, the coronal mass ejection actually pushes out a big cloud of uh, plasma, magnetic fields and, and particles out into space. Okay, fortunately, we're pretty lucky here on Earth also because we have A, an atmosphere, and B, a magnetic field. Okay, both of those protect us from almost all effects from both of those events. So if a big uh, flare happens on the sun and, and a bunch of radiation comes charging towards the Earth, the uh, atmosphere is going to absorb most of that and then irradiate it away and we're gonna be fine. Okay, a, a, a coronal mass ejection, a CME, comes rushing from the sun, hits the earth, the magnetic fields, they're gonna take care of most of that and they're gonna funnel it down to North Pole and the South Pole of the earth. And actually we see those as, as Aurora uh, when, when that happens, when oh. those CMEs get uh, redirected and they hit the, the earth's upper atmosphere, it's the Northern Lights or the Southern Lights, pretty oh. cool. But the real challenge is we as humans, we don't like to stay put, right? We're kind of pushing out into space deeper and deeper, either with satellites or with human exploration. Well, once you get outside of the Earth's protective atmosphere and protective magnetic fields, whoa, well, now you're very susceptible to these things. Mm -hmm. So when you're designing a satellite, if you are an aerospace engineer and designing a satellite to be in orbit for a long period of time, the radiation effects from the sun are something you have to take into account very carefully. But also you have to take into account the atmospheric effects because if you, um, if you remember uh, thinking about gases and, and, and energies, we talked about this a little earlier, if you put a bunch of energy into a gas, it'll puff up and it'll, it'll expand. Um, and so the Earth's atmosphere does the same thing. And so if you have a satellite in orbit and a bunch of energy gets dumped um, into the Earth's atmosphere by the sun, solar activity, then the Earth's atmosphere will expand and the satellite will experience more drag, uh, which means that it's going to last less time. It's going to deorbit. It's going to fall back into Earth uh, a whole lot quicker. Mm -hmm. So this idea of, of the, the solar activity um, is critical when you're talking about sending anything into space. Um, you you got to be very careful about knowing what the sun's going to do, making predictions, and then making very carefully, carefully calculated equations to to compensate for those things as you come in. So like more, more rocket fuel, for example, to boost your, your altitude a little bit. Um, but fortunately for us, the sun it goes through a cycle. It's called the solar cycle. So every about 11 to 12 years, we go through a period of quiet time and then active time and then quiet time. Right now, we're ramping up towards solar maximum. So the sun's getting more and more active. Um, it'll reach solar maximum probably around 2024. Uh, it's still a little, it's a little iffy. We we have forecast models, but they're not always 100% accurate. So we're looking about 2024 for solar maximum, and then it will ramp down um, to solar minimum, where the sun becomes very quiet, very stable again. What? I, uh, okay, no, I know. Sorry, There's but, a lot of questions. <laughs> are you one? Oh, you, you go one? ahead. Okay. I think. <laughs> so, what's causing these solar cycles? It, we do like amateur radio, and that's yeah. all they talk about yeah. is solar cycles. And so uh, two questions, can I ask okay, two? Uh, I'm sorry, I don't mean to haul. No, yeah. uh, one, what causes the solar cycles? Uh -huh. And two, why are all these amateur radio people talking about it? It's, obviously it's doing something to our ionosphere, our atmosphere here. And yeah. so what's it, why is that important for people to know? 
Yeah. Okay. So I'll start off with an easy question, which is your second one. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the when uh, so when the uh, the sun has a lot of activity, there's a lot of solar flares. Um, the ionosphere is full of ions. It's actually a, a state of plasma, right? Okay. So we have plasma. Don't run past that. Wait, wait. <laughs> the ionosphere on Earth. On Earth. Is plasma. So so it has plasmic properties to it because it is a soup of ions so no longer it's not fully ionized right so it's not a, it's not like the sun and because it's still it's we're, we're not talking about millions of degrees here but there's enough energy dumped into the ionosphere to make a soup of ions so no longer is it just a gas anymore it has these special properties um that that is that are plasmic that it has plasmic properties huh. yeah that's really cool. I didn't know. Uh -huh. <laughs> Sorry. No, it's fine. Interrupt your explanation. <laughs> okay. Okay. So uh, getting back to the ionosphere. Okay. So in the ionosphere, um, when, when you dump a bunch of energy into the ionosphere um, and it, it expands, like, you know, any, any sort of, of particles, you heat them up and they move around more and they're going to take up more volume. What's really interesting about this is that it changes the way radio communications can work here on Earth. So a lot of times with ham radios and, and other uh, ground-based radio systems, they end up bouncing signals off of the underside of the ionosphere. So when the atmosphere starts going from a gas to a little bit more ionized and, and stops behaving quite the same, you can actually reflect, you can bounce radio signals off of that. And so you can get these radio signals traveling great, great distances, depending on the condition of the ionosphere. Um, and this is this has been well known for years and years. I mean, back uh, I think there's a couple of interesting anecdotes about. Um, uh, let's see here. Uh, I want to say it was the Vietnam War. There was a bunch of um, uh, mines, um, like sea uh, mines, that accidentally exploded because they got a, a spurious radio signal because of solar activity. So there's some really cool examples in the past of how these radio signals really mess things up. Or there's, I think there's other anecdotes about World War II and uh, critical radio signals being lost because of the ionosphere changing and they weren't uh, ready for it. They weren't, couldn't compensate for it. And so they just, the, the, you know, the radio signals didn't get out to the front lines. So there's, there's some interesting examples from, from wartime, but in, in just everyday life, they, the changing state of the ionosphere can change any signal coming through it uh, from space. So let's say that you have, uh, well, I have one right here. I bet you have one too. I have a phone, right? I have a, a, an iPhone here. Okay. In the iPhone, there's a GPS uh, receiver. Okay. So GPS receivers work by getting a signal from a satellite that comes down and actually they look at four or five different satellites. It triangulates the point and it says you're right here on the earth and can give you an accurate location of where you are on the planet. And then you can, you know, get directions to the grocery store, whatever you're trying to do, but you're using these signals coming in from outer space in order to get you to your, your friend's house or the grocery store. However, if the ionosphere puffs up and changes from a lot of this uh, solar activity, those signals can, can get diverted. They can get sort of, um, uh, uh, it's called GPS scintillation. They can change a bit. And so that accuracy can go and completely get destroyed. So if you get lost using your GPS one time, like it says you're five streets over that way and you're actually right here and you take the wrong turn and all of that, it could be because of a solar storm. 
not because your GPS is, is somehow faulty. It's just the signals from those satellites are getting scrambled. That's really mm. interesting, yeah. So, okay, so now going back to the other question, which was about the solar cycle. Okay, this is a little bit more complicated. This is a lot harder because um, I'll just come out front, you know, we're, we're, we're all adults here. We don't really know. Uh, I mean, we, we have ideas, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of people studying, a lot of very peop smart people studying, a smart, lot smarter than I am. Um, but when it comes down to it, we don't really know. And the reason why we don't know is that we really only have very limited information about how our sun works, okay? So let me, let me just paint the picture for you. First of all, we're talking about um, these uh, 11 or 12 year cycles. So in the solar cycle, what ends up happening is the, the pole of the sun flips, okay? So every 11 years, what that means is that the sun has a North Pole and a South Pole, magnetic pole, sort of like Earth, kind of like you have a North Pole and a South Pole, kind of like a bar magnet. And then every during that solar cycle, they flip. The North becomes the South and the South becomes the North and it flips. Okay. And then 12 years later-ish, uh, 13, 12, 13 years later, it flips back again. And, and it's been doing that. So we first noticed this as um, as a as human society uh, not that long ago. Considering, um, I think it was back in the 1700s, we've started a recording what's called the sunspot cycle. So these are um, small blemishes that you see on the surface of the sun that are actually uh, uh, strong magnetic fields. Um, the, so these are really strong magnetic fields that block out some of the radiation coming from the sun. Look like dark spots. Mm -hmm. right, back in the 1700s. Um, I started keeping a log of all these spots and where they exist. And so we have a log of when the activity goes up, there's more sunspots. And when the activity comes back down, there's less sunspots. We've been recording it and we've had a, a pretty good record. I mean, we have, you know, several dozen of these. Well, several dozen, that's not a very good sample size, is it? I mean, like, you know, we, we just haven't seen the sun for that long. I mean, the sun is what, uh, uh, what, three and a half billion, four billion years old, 28 billion years old. We haven't seen enough of the sun to really understand why it's doing what it's doing. Okay, so that's, that's one problem. We just haven't been around long enough to observe it. Mm -hmm. The second problem is that nearly all of our views of the sun are from Earth. You know, we have uh, observatories that observe the sun on Earth. We put up satellites, but most of them are going around Earth or they're, they're somewhere close to Earth looking at the sun. There have been a few satellites that, um, you know, go around on the backside of the sun and come out again. But those are, are, are pretty, pretty few and far between. There's not many of them. I think uh, right now I can think of four that are in orbit right now. So we don't normally see much of the sun besides the Earth-facing side. And we've actually never seen the poles of the sun directly. So we've never actually flown up to see the North Pole or the South Pole of the sun. So part of the reason that it's so hard to understand something about these solar cycles, these magnetic cycles of the sun where the North Pole and the South Pole flips is that we just haven't seen enough of it. We haven't seen the North Pole of the sun. We haven't seen the backside of the sun consistently. We haven't observed the sun for a thousand years to be able to track and figure out how all this works. Mm -hmm. the, the more subtle answer to all of that is that 
um, the, it's the interior of the processes, interior processes of the sun that drive the solar cycle. So there are um, really significant um, energy motions from moving energy from the core of the sun where the energy is made out to the outer atmosphere and, and um, through convection and radiation and, and magnetic fields. It's a very dense and complicated process. And um, the, the computer models that we have of it, the, the simulations of the sun we have of it, just haven't been able to reproduce exactly what we've seen on the sun yet. We're getting there, but we just don't quite know yet. Uh. Now, I don't remember if I've heard this somewhere. Does Is the sun itself like rotating or, or moving or is the sun kind of like how the earth rotates? Does, it, does the sun yeah. rotate? <laughs> it does, um, but not exactly like the earth rotates. Okay. okay. So the sun is is a big miasma of plasma, as we talked about earlier, right? Okay, right. so it doesn't actually have like a hard surface like the earth does. It doesn't have a rocky surface that you could stand on. It's just, it just gets more and more dense as you go in. And so it's like, it, it's, you know, the consistency of pudding and then it's the consistency of concrete and then it's the consistency of steel. And then, it, you know, it just, the density just slowly gets more and more dense. So because of that, when the sun spins, it doesn't rotate like a, a, a top, like a rigid body. It does what we call differential rotation, which means that the, the equator rotates at a different speed than the pole does. And so it, things tend to get smeared out. Um, Jupiter uh, acts the same way. It's a big gas giant planet. It spins the same way. And in fact, the atmosphere here on Earth it has similar sorts of uh, effects. There, there are other, other things going on with the Earth, so I'm not an expert in that, so we won't go into it. But um, whenever you have uh, like a, a big ball of gas moving, you get this differential rotation where you get the different latitudes spinning at different rates. And so like, for example, the equator goes around about once every 25 days uh, versus the poles go around once every 28, 29 days. Um, so it, it, it just depends on where you look. Um, we, we call a Carrington rotation is that the term that scientists use to describe the one rotation of the sun. Well, it's really just an average rotation of the sun. And so you get these, if you make a, a map of the sun, you get these weird smearing effects at the poles or something like that because it doesn't actually rotate um, yeah, nice and easy. Um, so it's, it's one, of those, one of those challenges whenever you're studying the sun. Very cool. Now you had mentioned space forecasts or, or um, not for solar forecasts. So who, yeah. who are the forecasts? Is there a national solar forecast center, like yeah. National <laughs> Weather Center. Like, like the National <laughs> Weather Center. And who, who are, who should be interested in, in solar forecasts or who does, who will these affect or who, who is watching for them? Well, I think everybody should be interested, but right, you know, right, I'm yeah. like the highest <laughs> So there are really, uh, here in the U.S., there are uh, really three different groups that do solar forecasts. Um, so where I work at NASA, we have the uh, Community Coordinated Modeling Center. And what that is, is a group that um, pulls together the scientific models for how the sun behaves or forecasts for how eruptions should travel through space or any of these um, these specific forecasts and pulls them all together into a public resource. Yeah, I mean, you can go check it out, the CCMC, um, and you can look at these models and see what the forecasts are. 
Okay, that's that's a much research uh, oriented. If you want, like, you know, uh, should I launch my satellite today forecasts, <laughs> um, then you're going to go to NOAA, uh, the National Orient Oceanic and um, National Oceanic and Atmosphere Association. So if you go to NOAA, um, NOAA has a Space Weather Prediction Center. Um, Space Weather Prediction Center handles those uh, forecasts, including the all clear forecast saying, yes, please launch your satellite or spacecraft today, or the forecast for there's a 30% chance of a, of a medium sized flare or a large sized flare. So they are the ones that really handle those um, those day-to-day -day forecasts. It's, it's fun. You can go check it out uh, because they will tell you, um, you know, there's a high chance or high probability of a solar storm. And if you live at a northern latitude, you might be able to see some northern lights out of it, which would be cool. Um, so especially like, yeah, if you're in Michigan or, or uh, Minnesota or Wisconsin or North Dakota, they, they see northern lights all the time. Uh, and then, of course, then there's the um, the military side of things, and the um, Air Force uh, Research Lab does its own forecast for military applications. Um, of course, we all sort of work together, but the military is, like I was mentioning earlier, that there's been some issues during wartime that, you know, a message didn't get conveyed or that a, a munition was detonated prematurely because of solar activity. The, the military recognized this um, back in the 40s and 50s, and so they're very very interested in having a very accurate forecast for um, all of the activities they're doing. So they do their own forecasting. Um, of course, uh, you can see some of these um, uh, models that the, that the Air Force uses or that NOAA uses at the Community Coordinated Wobbling Center at NASA. So you can go and see it your, for yourself. So a lot of these models are, are uh, public source and you can go in, and look at them if you want. That's cool. Yeah, that was really, it's good to know. I mean, it's neat to know just there are places you could go to check it out. I know um, when I was younger, we used to, we always, well, we live here kind of central Indiana, but we were really interested. We would love to see the Northern Lights. And I remember uh, my dad would look at some things and he'd say, oh, you know, there's, there's, there might be a chance if we go out somewhere where it's really dark, but it was like only certain times I never understood as a kid where, you know, where those chances might be coming from. But that makes sense now to hear about these solar storms. Yeah. Well, not only that, um, so you want a clear skies, of course, no clouds. Mm -hmm. um, because if you're chasing Aurora, you, you don't want clouds in your way. Um, and then oftentimes people associate Aurora with wintertime. And that's really because it's darkness. I mean, if it's dark out, you have a better chance of seeing it. You have a more nighttime, you have more opportunities to see it. Um, so yes, Aurora happen um, all, all year long, but in the uh, northern winter, you have a lot of darkness and you can actually have a better chance of seeing it. So we're coming up to a very good aurora watching season, right? So it's going to be winter. The sun's becoming more active. So, you know, keep your eye on those forecasts because I think there's going to be some good aurora coming up. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. Now, it, one of the things we wanted to ask about eclipse, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That's yeah. one of the things. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I thought so. I, I don't know if we have, we've, I don't know if we've, asked you anything that we said we were going to ask you yet uh, or that we didn't say we was going to ask you we're, we're pretty random but uh, i know that we're going to have a solar eclipse here that uh indiana actually will be in like full view of which i don't ever remember that happening in my lifetime right. um it's it, so it's i'm really curious about this a why hasn't it happened here in my lifetime and b what is it <laughs> All right. Uh, we'll start again Stop with, your with the two question questions. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, what is a total solar eclipse? Um, 
a total solar eclipse is happens when the moon blocks out the sun completely and actually it just casts a shadow onto the earth so you know you have you have the sun you have the earth and then the moon just passes between the two and and casts a small little shadow on the earth and we live in a really interesting place in the entire solar system because this is the only place where our moon the moon here on earth exactly blocks out the sun like it exactly covers it or maybe just a little extra covers it doesn't happen anywhere else like any other planet that you're on it doesn't happen in the same way so it makes us special here and then even more special is that path that path of totality where the sun is completely blocked by the moon it's fairly narrow um you're you're only talking well it depends on the eclipse how fat that line is but you're talking maybe uh, 50 to 100 miles in in a normal eclipse and so at that point where you're sitting on the line of totality so where the sun is completely blocked by the moon then what you happens is you can see this outer edge of the sun that normally is invisible to us because the sun's too bright called the corona this is where all the space weather happens that we were talking about earlier okay this is where all of those flares and coronal mass ejections all of that stuff this is where it comes from is in the solar corona right here and so you can see it with your own eyes like the the, the bright uh, disk of the sun is covered up and you can see this kind of gossamer thin it, it's really striking it's absolutely gorgeous um uh, i was able to see it in 2017 in in oregon and it was absolutely spectacular it's one of those events that lives up to the hype right okay so you know there are other events in astronomy like i love astronomy but there are other events where you know you go out and see a meteor shower and by the time you've seen the fourth shooting star you're like oh that was really nice and then you stick around for another hour and you see the hundredth shooting star and you're like wow that was that was really nice and it was a pleasant evening this is like i don't know a thousand times cooler than that maybe a million times cooler than that okay it only lasts for a few minutes. Um, I'd have to look up exactly, depending on where you are in Indiana, you're gonna get a different amount, but it's gonna go, the eclipse in 2024, it's gonna start in Mexico, uh, come on shore in about Mazatlan, Mexico, come up through Texas, uh, hitting some Oklahoma, Arkansas, um, Indiana, Ohio, uh, and then up the uh, the Great Lakes, hitting the, um, uh, let's see here, Lake Erie, and then out the St. Lawrence Seaway, sort of New Brunswick area up through Canada. Um, so it kind of cuts across the, the, the heartland of the United States, and it's going to provide 35 million people the opportunity to, to see a total solar eclipse without moving. You don't have to travel anywhere. You just go outside at the right time and you can see it. Okay. April 8th, 2024, put it on your calendar now, uh, circle it, highlight it, set yourself a reminder on your phone, do whatever you can. Remember to go outside and see this. This is absolutely spectacular. And the reason why is that if you stand in any one location on the earth, they're pretty rare. Like you're just are not going to see them very often because the moon's shadow is kind of small compared to the earth. It's, it's a pretty small shadow. So if you were to just stand someplace and wait for a solar eclipse, you'd be waiting on average about 300 to 350 years before seeing one. So if you just were say, stand here, I'm going to look up and wait for a total solar eclipse. It's 300 to 350 years. So it seems like a very rare event. But in if you look at the entire Earth, it's actually much more common. We see a, a, a solar eclipse about once or twice a year on average. Oh, wow. However, the Earth is mostly covered by water, 
it's mostly remote. There's not a lot of people living a lot of places. And so there are people that literally travel around the world looking for total solar eclipses. They chase them around the world. Um, and so I can guarantee in your backyard, there will be people from around the world that will travel to Indiana or wherever you live in order to see the solar eclipse. That's how big it is. Um, in, in Oregon in 2017, we had uh, tourists from Japan and from Australia fly to Oregon just to see the eclipse, just for the two minutes to glimpse the, the view of the solar corona. That's how spectacular it is. But what are they using to look? Because I know you can't look right at it still, right? Okay. Most of the time, yes. Um, I would say anytime when you look at the sun, you need to use a solar filter or solar eclipse glasses. You have to have special filters and special glasses. The only exception ever is when you're in totality. When the sun is completely covered, then you can remove your eclipse glasses. You can take the filter off your camera and actually take a picture or look at it directly. That is the only time. Every other time when the sun is almost covered you can't do it when the sun is like 99.99 percent covered you still can't do it only when it's a hundred percent covered can you take off those filters and actually see it with your own eyes and it is absolutely gorgeous so please do because if you forget to take them off you're going to miss the best part oh i didn't know we could do that. wow it sounds a little risky though like i'm just thinking <laughs> okay but like what if i take them off and it's 99.9 that's a good question how do you know it's not <laughs> Okay, so if you go to um, NASA's Eclipse website, um, the, uh, let's see here, eclipse, uh, solarsystem.nasa.gov slash eclipses, um, we're, we're going to get a simpler web address once, we, once everything is getting uh, uh, ramping up, but uh, go to NASA's Eclipse website, um, or there's many other Eclipse websites out there, they will give you a, a forecast down to probably the second of when the eclipse will happen right where you are. So that that's going to help. Okay. okay, number two, uh, when you have your eclipse glasses on, you're looking up at the sun, when it's totally covered, the everything's black, you're not going to see anything anymore. So then you know, it's safe to take them off, right? Okay. okay. Um, and so if you're if you're watching eclipse, what we did is we knew the eclipse was going to last uh, let's say three minutes and 32 seconds. Okay. So I, I got out my phone and set a timer for three minutes and 30 seconds and press go as soon as I took off my glasses. Timer goes off, you put your glasses on or, or you just look away. It's not not like it's going to blind everything. You just don't look at the sun anymore. And then it comes back into uh, the sun comes out of totality and then you put your glasses back on, you can look back up again. So it's really not that scary. Um, the worst that would happen is that you're staring at the sun, it's sort of like walking out of a dark room into a bright day where you're like, oh, that's too bright and you look away. And so as long as you don't force yourself to look at the sun, you'll be okay. You'll be fine. If you force yourself like you're trying to prove something, then you know it can cause some real damage. So please don't do that. That's very reassuring. I feel <laughs> I feel more confident about <laughs> viewing this now. So that's awesome. Well, I'll have my camera ready. Yeah. Now. Yeah, yeah. So if you are thinking about taking photos of this, um, which is which is uh, super exciting, uh, if you want to, please do. But also don't feel obligated. There are so many professional photographers out there that will probably be near you or in your backyard that will take amazing photos of the eclipse because they're used to it. They got the, you know, all of their camera settings uh, right. They have the tripods. They have everything just set up perfectly. Um, you know, maybe take a snapshot, but don't, uh, unless you're, this is a hobby of yours and you're, you're super excited to do it, 
just experience it, just enjoy it because it's so much better to just experience it and look at it. Maybe take a snapshot of you and your, your friend in totality, but don't, um, don't pressure yourself too much to get the perfect shot because there will be tons of beautiful shots coming out afterwards. That's really cool. That is cool. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> now, the center, I, I, know, I know you probably expected us to talk about that mostly, but we, we haven't even got to that. Uh, the center, the, the what do you call it, is heat. That's the heat. And uh, yeah. what what is this center for? Yeah. So what we're, uh, the Heliophysics Education Activation Team, um, you know, it's, it's NASA. We like our acronyms. So, you know, NASA heat, we're the sun. Um, so this, this group, uh, we are tasked with getting heliophysics, the idea of the sun and the sun-earth relation, into schools, into after-school clubs, into any place that somebody is interested in learning more about the sun. Um, and the really neat thing is that the sun has so many different science lessons that are just ripe for addition into any sort of curriculum. So if you are teaching about colors, well, the sunlight has all the colors in it. You can get out of prism and break the sunlight into the colors. If you're talking about, I don't know, um, Earth's energy budget, about you know, the energy coming in and, and how, the, how it gets uh, reflected off the different surfaces on the Earth and what gets trapped and all that, the energy comes from the sun and understanding that solar energy is the first start, uh, part of that. Um, but even really interesting things, like if you're teaching math and you wanna understand, or you wanna give a good context to calculus problems that you're trying to teach or algebra or geometry, any of these fundamental math or science um, topics, the sun has ready-made problems for you. So you maybe you're trying to teach geometry and you wanna talk about volumes of, of structures. Well, the way scientists model those coronal mass ejections coming off from the sun is with a cone. And we need to know how much material is in that cone. And so figuring out the volume of that cone, it, it's a lot more interesting than just you know, seeing a diagram on a page when you're trying to predict you know, space weather, whether or not your astronaut is gonna survive because of this event. So we, we have those materials, um, we're, we're providing them to uh, learners of all, all, all ages really, but our target audience is um, you know, grades five through 12 with a little bit of spillover on either end. So if you're um, looking, at, if you're an uh, educator or if you are a, a, um, an undergraduate or you're in, um, in community college, this is the stuff for you. This is really trying to connect what you're learning to something tangible, something real, and something that that's honestly a lot more engaging than staring at numbers on a page or just learning a, a bland concept. So, I, you know, I I'm already sold, right? Like I already know that the sun is amazing. I already think that the sun is something that not only teaches us about our place in the solar system, but gives us insight into how life exists, how physics exists, how the you know how the universe exists, like the sun is this place that we can look to for a lot of these, um, these questions and we can get a lot of answers out of it. It's a, it's a fascinating thing. And um, that's what he's trying to do is, is help people understand. Um, I think the tagline we came up with is to humanize heliophysics. Um, so we're, we're trying to, you know, get you connected to your sun. We'll make sure we put in the description of the, mm -hmm. the video, we'll make sure we put the link so people don't have to hunt for it, they can go right to it from the description, right. make it a little easier. On yeah, it. 
Please do. And and so we're we're part of a, a larger cohort at NASA called the um, called Science Activation. So Science Activation is um, many different programs across the country looking to bring NASA into the classroom and into your community. Um, and so this is really the outreach um, arm of a lot of NASA science. So there are many different programs there, some related to the eclipse, some related to earth science, some related to astrophysics. So especially if you're um, an educator or if you're just a, a curious individual and want to get in touch with NASA in your backyard, the Science Activation Network is a great way to, to access that. And then we can provide the link for that as well. Yes, definitely. Because yes. that, I mean, that's, that's uh, okay. A lot of our people are science teachers mm -hmm. and students that watch our videos, but we also have just a lot of science enthusiasts. Yeah. And so I, I love that you you mentioned just if you just want to know more about how the science mm -hmm. there, because a lot of people are curious. I mean, as I know I, myself, it's, yeah. I, it's I, I, we talk about different things and I, I have no choice. I am driven to go look up a little yeah. bit more about that because it's exciting. And so I, a lot of people, I think, uh, appreciate the fact that the sites like that are there that we can go get science from the experts. Absolutely. And I think that's very key, right? Science from the experts, a reliable source of information that you can count on. So that's good. Not the Yeah. And especially, <laughs> especially if you, um, if you want to uh, be a volunteer, there's, there are ways that you can be a volunteer officially. Like if you want to be a solar system ambassador, you can be a, a, a science nerd that is recognized by NASA. Uh, and so you can join the Solar System Ambassador Program. It's a fantastic program run through SIAC to really engage your community on all sorts of astronomy topics. If you are an undergraduate or if you are late high school and you want to specifically uh, get engaged with the Eclipse, the Solar or the uh, Eclipse Ambassadors program that's run under SIAC um, that is recruiting people right now to be eclipse ambassadors in your community. So if you have any uh, listeners out there that, uh, you know, maybe are an enthusiast themselves or know of one that is, uh, you know, a, a younger person that is enthusiastic and eager to engage your community about uh, the eclipse, the eclipse ambassador is a fantastic program. So it's not just about, um, you know, getting information, but it's also about, you know, volunteering and giving back to your community um, with NASA's help. Oh, that's awesome. That is. Well, this is awesome. We really yeah. appreciate you taking time chatting with us, and we'll definitely follow up and uh, see if we can't get more of your coworkers to talk about some of those topics. Because yeah. uh, I know uh, the listeners and the teachers and science yeah. enthusiasts, heck, who doesn't want to know? I, I so, <laughs> thank you. I feel like this just flew. I mean, I, <laughs> I was just eating every word he said. I thought, guys, this is wonderful. <laughs> Well, I, I'm really glad because um, I think for so long, the sun has just been sort of background, like it's your weather. Are you looking if it's sunny or out? And I, I'm here to tell you that the sun's so much more exciting about that. So um, I, I'm happy to answer your questions. And I'm also happy to come back on here if, if um, you know, if you get questions from your listening audience and you want me to readdress some things, I'm happy to come back and, and talk through some more stuff. Oh, that's awesome. fair. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Science from the Experts from Purdue University Superheroes of Science. If you like this episode, subscribe, give us a positive view, and share the love. Boiler up! Hammer down! <laughs>